if you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Good morning, Icon. Did we, uh, did we have our Wheaties this morning? Are you ready to jump into it? Yeah? I want to give a couple disclaimers before we jump into today's sermon. First, uh, just a little little note. We're going to do our scripture reading and then prayer. It's going to be a longer prayer because uh, we wanted to do just a a short time of prayer for our city. Uh, We just experienced an election, and and God calls his people to pray for those who are in power and those who lead our city. So we want to pray for that. Uh, But the main disclaimer for today is that we have 35 to 40 minutes to talk about something that rules most of our lives 24-7, either through media or even through, or, or through personal experience. And so uh, we talked about being grace-oriented as a church, and I would ask that you'd be grace-oriented today as we try to talk about something so large in such a small amount of time. This is not the last sermon you'll hear on this topic. Uh, th- there's more to it. So that's my, that's my disclaimer. Today's scripture reading comes from two different texts. First, in Genesis 1, starting in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our second scripture for today, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity for us to, to come together as a church and to sit under your word yet again. And we pray that today, God, before we even get started, we pray that, that, we, would be, that we would be aware of what's happening in our city that we would see that you have placed people in power. No matter who we like or who we don't like, you are the one who has decided every election and you are sovereign. And you call your people to submit to you through prayer. And we pray for our leaders today, God. As a, as a church, we, we want to pray for, for Bruce Harrell, who's become the, the mayor of our city. God, would you give him wisdom? Would you give him the wisdom and the tactfulness that is necessary to bring justice into our city? To allow the flourishing of men and women and children in our city. I I pray that you would give him wisdom. We we pray for some of the, the new city council men and women, and even those who have been on city council before. God, we pray that you would give them sobriety for their task. We ask that you would help them, by your power, to divorce from their role, politics, and bases, and that they would seek justice for our city. We pray for the the new city attorney, 
and Ann Davison. We, we pray that you would give her wisdom on how to balance the law in a way that brings justice and peace, while also balancing that with compassion and reality. We know that those are things that, that only you can do, and we, we want to submit ourselves to you today that, that you have placed these people in our city to lead our city for this moment, and we ask that you would give us the grace to, to not, not deride like our culture does, not divide like our culture does. Elections are fantastic opportunities to express our choice, but also to remember that we are not in control. But we trust that you are. And so we, we pray that you would give us as a church the, the faith to sit back into your sovereignty with peace and to work for the good of our city, invest in our city, rather than deriding it from the sidelines. Would you give us that grace? And now as we turn to your word, would you help us to, to have soft hearts to hear what you might have to say? Would you give us the, the grace to see the wonderful picture of sexuality that, that you've given us, but more than that, the picture of what you've given us, of what it means to be human, to understand that, that this whole thing exists, that, that sexuality and mankind exists with a purpose. And, and I pray today that you would keep our hearts from exploding with anger or from, explode, from, from having expectations that ultimately your word doesn't meet. We pray for, for spiritual power today, God, to, to see and analyze the story that our culture is telling around sexual ethics, and then to hear and to see the more beautiful, the more compelling story that your word gives us. Would you give us that grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first recorded instance of blessing the first instance of God's spirit of generosity toward humans, human beings is this. He gives them their sexuality. In the first page of scripture, you read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Before God shows them the garden, before he introduces them to the wonders of nature, he gives them the opportunity for sexual pleasure with one another. That's what Genesis 1 is referring to when it says that God blessed them. At the very outset of scripture, God gives the man and the woman nerve endings that will make way for pleasure that is electric, <laughs> Physiological chemicals in the brain that will both attract and bind the man and the woman together under the safety of intimate connection. The sexuality that God gives men and women is, is not just utilitarian. <laughs> you see that even in the text, the, the blessing of pleasure. God bless them, and then he gives them the command to go and be fruitful and multiply. God gives the blessing of pleasure before the command of procreation. I want to say this to you. God loves our sexuality. God loves our sexuality. Our sexuality as human beings is not an accident. It is not an aberration. It's not like Satan tacked on some extra flesh on men and women while God had his back turned to him. God turned around and was like, what are you doing? Get off of her, Adam. It was not an aberration. It was intentional. 
Every aspect of our anatomy and of our physiological chemicals that make sex and sexuality so magnetic, God made that as an act of his generosity. God loves our sexuality, but here's my question for you. Do you? Do you? Because the hard truth is this. Sexuality is the place of some of our deepest wounds. It's, it's the place where, where some of our most hurtful intrusions or abuses have come. Our sexuality seems to be the lightning rod for our brokenness. I know this to be true of myself. I know that from the age of 14 up to a decade after that, my sexuality was not a gift. It didn't feel like it, at least. It didn't feel like it was a gift of God's generosity, generosity but a burden of shame whether it was from the compulsory addictions or from the griminess of shame, I hated my sexuality. I, I, I hated it. My, my sexuality felt like this, this huckster that made promises that it never intended to fulfill. I felt, you know, I felt like a, a kid with an absentee dad who promised to show up to the game, but yet again was left with the head hanging low in disappointment. That's been my testimony with sexuality. And it's been my experience that so many people I know have that same exact testimony. The sexuality that we carry in a broken world feels like a minefield. It feels like a minefield that that any misstep we might make can lead to an explosion. None of us are sexually whole. None of us are sexually whole. I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount raises the bar of sexual wholeness so high that none, none of us, can reach it day to day. On our best jump, cannot reach that bar day to day. We are each sexual sinners in this room. Not just out there in Capitol Hill, but within these walls at this moment, there is a kaleidoscope of sexual brokenness. Can we just, can we just slow down for a second and recognize that? Feel the, the, the weight and, and the burden of that. That the problem's not out there, not just out there. In this room, there is a kaleidoscope of sexual brokenness. Each of us could give stories of how our sexuality has not felt like a gift from God, not an expression of his generosity, but rather the place in which we find some of our deepest shame and most hurtful memories. Why do I say all this? Well, one of the, one of the problems I have with sermons that, that deal on the topic of our culture's sexual ethic is that they go something like this. There's an admission of how sensitive and personal this issue is, almost as a necessity. And then what follows is a sermon that amounts to nothing more than theological or rational gotcha moments. <laughs> sociological warnings of fallout and woe. Pastors preach sermons on sexuality as if they have no skin in the game. No pun intended. (laughs) Not only is that pastorally unwise, but it also reinforces the, the wrong idea that LGBTQ issues are anything special when it comes to our brokenness as human beings. It reinforces that idea. Sermons that are nothing more than than putting on a theological workshop for why LGBTQ ideas are unbiblical, that ends up producing the opposite of what's intended. 
by singling out this one issue of our sexuality problem, it actually reinforces the idea that LGBTQ issues are somehow in another category of brokenness, which actually ends up supporting the liberal church's idea that the biblical purpose of our sexuality is too hard for the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community, and so therefore an exception should be granted. When the truth is this, sin has so ruptured the human heart and distorted the human experience that all of us together hear Jesus' call to pick up our cross as for what it really is, a call to die. All of us together, specifically in this category of sexuality, hear that call of Jesus to carry our cross, to pick up, to die to ourselves. We feel it with the same weight, if we're hearing it rightly. Each and every one of us have the tentacles of sin so deep within our hearts that the prospect of loosening ourselves from it just feels as scary as anyone else who will hear it. All of us are sexually broken. And as you can probably see by now, I'm not going to do today maybe what you thought I was going to do. Today, we, we will most certainly talk about the LGBTQ community, but I really want to avoid letting us heterosexual sinners off the hook. Because each of us are sexual sinners. I will not preach a sermon on sexuality that deals exclusively with, with, with just one category of sexual sin. By doing that, we actually give our culture the ammunition, ammunition at once to fire back at us that we are just bigots who care about people who, are who hate people who are different than us. I don't want to do that. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to get into Genesis and into 1 Corinthians in a little bit when we uh, discuss some things at the end. But first, what I want to do is give an assessment of what's going on in our culture and un unfortunately in Christians that is actually allowing for sexual sin to run rampant. And that in the end, actually does give the LGBTQ community and movement the steam that, that it needs. Th think of it like this. Our, our, our sexuality as people is like a planet. There's a lot of things happening down on the ground, right? There's people living their lives. There's hookup culture. There's pornography. There's gender reassignment surgeries. There's marriage licenses. There's all kinds of things going on on the ground. What I want to do today is zoom out and see what are the atmospheric conditions that exist that's actually making all of that activity possible. Like, like our planet, right? We, we all know this, that we have an atmosphere that actually allows for us to live and to do things in real life. The same is true for this category of sexuality. It's not just a topic of gender reassignment. It's not just a topic where you can discuss same-sex attraction, but you actually have to zoom out and see what are the ideas, even more than that, what are the stories about what it means to be human that is being told that's actually making it possible for all of those other things to continue to go on. 
And so I, I want to zoom us out today and see what are those stories? What's the stories that our culture is believing when it comes to our sexuality, more so what it means to be human, that has actually given us the possibility to end up where we are? Okay? Everybody got their thinking caps on? Yeah? Can I get some response? Thank you, Paolo. Okay. I got you for like 30 minutes. You can take a nap after this. Just focus in. Okay? So... What are these atmospheric conditions, the, these stories of what it means to be human that is making it possible for everything else to go wrong? Well, both of these stories center around what it means to be human, and the first story is that of uh, what you might call the, the psychological man or woman. So Philip Reith was a sociologist and professor at the University of Pennsylvania uh, for about 30 years, a very popular sociologist, and he, he's famous for a number of books, but the one he's most famous for is this book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, The Uses of Faith After Freud. And in that book, he outlines the, the history of identities in the last few thousand years. So it's a, it's a page turner. <laughs> and he, he shows that, that each period of history has had an ideal of an identity. That each period of history has an ideal identity that actually drove how people participated in society. And so the way that he kind of maps it out is that, that the first type of ideal identity is what he calls the culture of the political man or woman. The, the political man was, was the ideal within the works of Aristotle and Plato. And the crux of their identity all centered around participation within society. The identity of the, of the ideal political man or woman was, was found in their activities and how they engaged with public life. And then as, as he moves on, he, he shows how uh, once society got into the medieval ages, the ideal identity changed into that of the religious man or woman. The, the, the person found their, their sense of self, who they were, through their religious activities. Man, man and woman were, were at, the, at their core, th this idea, pilgrims on a, on a religious journey and participated in society as such. After that, Reef shows that the religious man eventually fell away and what came into place was the economic man specifically in the Industrial Revolution, who found their sense of identity in economic activity, right? To, to, to go in and produce. But eventually, this economic identity was displaced within the last 40 years or so with a, with a new category, the psychological man or woman. This new ideal identity is characterized not so much by finding out identity through outward-directed activities, as was true of some of those other previous types, but rather what's happened is that our core identity has now become this inward quest for personal psychological happiness. That, that's the identity that everyone is moving toward in our culture, personal psychological happiness. That's the ideal. That's the good life, right? It's to have personal psychological happiness. And, and we see this all over. Take, for example, the, the category of job satisfaction. Just a generation ago, job satisfaction was, was filtered through the reality of the economic ideal, meaning that your job was not about who you were. 
It was not about ultimately even what you wanted, but about what you produced. Job satisfaction would have been a strange question to even just a couple generations ago. To my granddad, if I would have asked him, hey, were you satisfied as a truck driver? He would have said, he just would have looked at me and used his little New Mexico accent and said, that's stupid, son. You know? It wasn't a question that they were asking. Their vocations were not meant to give them a sense of identity. It was simply there to give them what they wanted, to, to give them the things that they needed for society to move on and for their personal families to have food on the table. But today, job satisfaction, the feeling that our job suits our personal needs and gives us a sense of fulfillment, that's the number one thing that's going to determine how long you're at your current job. <laughs> Not even how much money you're making, but whether you are satisfied with your job, whether your job is participating with or working against your personal psychological happiness. Our jobs have to serve that end rather than any greater end in society. This personal psychological happiness. So in, in this story of what it means to be human. Man and woman are at their core psychological beings, right? That's why you see the, the great virtue of our society. Can anybody guess what that might be? Authenticity. That's the virtue of our secular religious culture that works itself out through expressive individualism. And everything, everything that stands in the way of that is seen as oppressive and must be overthrown. Anything that hinders my outward expression of my inward feelings, anything that challenges my psychological beliefs about myself is by definition harmful and must be rejected. And you see, this right here, the category, elevating the category of our psychology into the most important and true thing about what it means to be human is the reason why the topic of sexuality is so explosive in our culture. If we were just talking about sexual desires or practices, things wouldn't feel so explosive. But the conversation is hitting at a nerve much deeper than that. We, we are not talking about passions, but we are talking about personhood, about identities. What, what's happened here is that, that our culture has taken a piece of what it means to be human and elevated it to supreme importance. Personal psychological happiness is to be sought after above everything. And that's why the conversation around sexuality is so explosive. Because what I feel in my psychology, what I feel like would make me happy through the expression of my sexuality, which we'll get into in a second, that's the most important thing. Not only that, that's who I am. My sexuality, the expression of my desires and my feelings is not just something that, that comes out of me, but it's who I am. And to come against that is explosive. That's why you hear language of oppressive, repressive, archaic. Because we're talking about things much deeper than that of, of sexual pleasure. So, so our society has come into the psychological man. 
And certainly, let's be honest, it's a good thing for our culture to talk about our psychology. That's not a bad thing. Certainly, in previous generations, they were too too cordoned off to their own psychological well-being. Without a doubt, praise God for therapy, in my life at least. But the pendulum has swung so far, it's about to go off its foundation altogether. We have loosened ourselves from reality when we believe that life is nothing more than the pursuit of psychological happiness. In a world where human beings are at their core psychological beings, therapy is the new religion, we see that. And as you might be able to guess also, is that the physical body gets downgraded to simply be tools in the construction of your personal psychological happiness. The body means nothing anymore. The the, the body means nothing. Our culture has seen this degradation of the body. Our bodies, our flesh, are no longer truth-tellers. They no longer tell us or help us at least begin to clue into what it means for Joshua to be Joshua. For you to be you, your body has been, to- has been thrown to the side. There's no longer an inherent purpose that it's communicating to us, but rather it's just a sack of sin that we luckily got from evolution that now our, our, our minds and our, our, our psychology can direct in order to pursue that great goal of personal psychological happiness. Our bodies mean nothing. That's why you hear, this is a whole nother sermon, but that's why you hear topics around the singularity and the metaverse. (laughs) I want to preach a sermon on the singularity. (laughs) Because we don't care about the body anymore. The body's just a tool. Or in conversations like the singularity or the metaverse, just burdens to, to show, to throw off so that our psychology and our consciousness can live on. Our culture is seeped in this new Gnosticism that seeks for the secret knowledge through our psychology and throws off the physical. But in pursuit of psychological happiness, there has come up another story about what it means to be human. Let me ask you this, and you know, don't, don't shout out the answer. What's the easiest way for you to feel happy. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) He knew where I was going. (laughs) Your sexuality, that's the easiest thing to do. The the dominant story is that of of psychological man or woman, but under that is another story, and it's the story you might call the, the triumph of the erotic. Not only does our culture view our identities as as housed within our psychological happiness, but in pursuit of that happiness, we have taken up the easiest tool to manufacture temporary happiness, our sexuality. Not only are we made out to be psychological beings at the core, but we've also sexualized our psychology. We are living Sigmund Freud's dream. (laughs) So now... The expression of our personal psychological happiness is directly dependent on our sexual expression and fulfillment. Sex and sexuality is no longer a luxury that accentuates what it means to live a human life, but it is life. 
It's the core of life. It no longer accentuates life, but defines it. Think about that for, for a second. Think about some of the language used in conversation around sex and sexuality. Again, in our our culture, anything that falls short of complete freedom for sexual expression is labeled repressive, inhumane even. Inhumane. The idea that someone would have a different opinion about sexual expression is labeled inhumane. That should clue us into what's really going on here. We're not just talking about sex. We're talking about an identity and how that identity finds its easiest route to express itself. Those words are not used simply because sex feels good and is a luxury, but those words are used because sexual expression is seen as the core of what it means to be human. And anything threatening that, anything limiting that sexual expression is therefore attacking the humanity of another person. That's what our culture believes. Sex and sexuality is no longer about passion, but personhood. Those are some of the narratives, some of the atmospheric conditions in our culture today. These are the atmospheric conditions that are making pornography, hookup culture, and every letter of the LGBTQ acronym possible. These are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And before I get into what I believe is the, the better story of what the gospel gives us, let me, let me just say one thing. These narratives, these stories, are meant to make sense of who we are. That's, that's what they're meant for at, at the outset. Let's talk specifically about the LGBTQ community. The narrative of being a psychological being at the core through which the, the, the easiest and best expression of that is through our sexuality. What's happening is that those in the LGBTQ community are trying to make sense of their life. That's, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make sense of what's going on. So can we, before we even get into this better story, can we as Christians stop for a moment and just see that anyone who is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, they are doing all they can to make sense of their life. That's what they're doing. Can we shut out <laughs> the political pundits that have so brainwashed us into thinking that LGBTQ is somehow an acronym where if you spell it backward, it means Satan. Can we shut that out for a second? Can we just remember that these are people we're talking about who our own theology says is fractured at the core like everyone else and is trying their best to make sense of a life that makes no sense. These stories are, these narratives are insufficient. We'll we'll get into that. But can we just acknowledge the effort? Can we just acknowledge that the the LGBTQ community is not out to make all of our kids transgender? There's an agenda behind it, for sure. 
But the majority of those in that community are simply hurting human beings who are trying to make sense of their life. Who are trying to make sense of what is going on. If we can say that, if we can acknowledge that, then we can tell the better story. We as Christians can have the compassion to see the hurting eyes of real people with real stories and real scars, and then, then, only then, can we move to invite them into the better story the Bible and the gospel tells us about what it means to be human. And so, to those who are living under the stories of the therapeutic and the erotic, where that has become the main plot line of their lives, we say, yes, that makes sense that you're trying to make sense. But the story that you've picked up on is insufficient. There's a better story that makes much more sense of your life. There's a biblical story around what it means to be human that answers some of our most serious and pressing questions. What's that story? Well, it has three main components. Obviously, the story of what we are, what we have been created in, how we have been corrupted, and then how we have been redeemed. The biblical story of what it means to be a human starts off with identity creation. So, so there in Genesis 1, like we read, we, we are told what human beings are at the core. And it goes deeper than everything else we've tried to construct for ourselves throughout history. It goes deeper than the political, the religious, the economic, and the psychological selves that we've tried for ages to construct our personhood around. All of those have to do with achievement, but here in the biblical story, we don't achieve in an identity, but we are given one. At the very outset there in Genesis 1, our identity, the, the, the core of what it means to be human is this. We, are, we talk about this all the time at Icon. Don't miss this out of familiarity. We are made in God's image. That's the core piece of what it means to be a human being. And that first part of that statement is just as, as important as the last part. We are made. If we were the, just a result of, of random events in a universe of meaninglessness, constructing ourselves would make the most sense. In a meaningless world, we would be left with that oppressive task of creating meaning. But the fact is that we are not just brain chemicals expressed through a sack of skin from the lucky process of evolution. Rather, we are made on purpose. You see that in the text in Genesis, right? In Genesis 1, there's this, there's this poetic rhythm, if you read it where God is creating everything. It says, and God said, and God said, and God said. But here, when it gets to his creation of mankind, it says, then God said, let us make man in our own image. God slows down and confers within himself what he's about to do. He slows down the rhythm to show that what he's about to do is done with intention. He makes mankind with purpose, on purpose. <laughs> and he makes them in his image. 
which is that core piece of what it means to be human. Our true selves, your true self, is not expressed through just personal psychological happiness. That's only a piece of us. Our most vivid happiness is not achieved through unfettered sexual fulfillment. Rather, the biblical story shows that our true selves and our most vivid happiness is found through what we are set up to do here, relate to God and reflect his glory back out to creation. Again, we talk about this all the time at Icon, that we are made in the image of God to reflect his glory. We were made to be these outward-facing mirrors that would, would point back to God and to one another and to all of creation, the glory of a good God. We were made to be mirrors, our truest Self-expression is not found through asserting ourselves or discovering ourselves, but through reflecting God's creativity and goodness. The biblical story tells us that our purpose is not found in, in creating ourselves, but receiving how we are created. It's a, it's a better, more relieving story because it, it takes away from us burden of self-creation. What a burden that is. What a burden it is on the human psyche to make the human psyche all of life. But God here creates us, creates us in his image and gives us that foundational purpose of relating to him, of knowing to him, knowing him, and reflecting out to the world every bit of goodness and glory that he is. That's what it means to be human. And yet, as the story goes on, we, we see that we as human beings have actually chosen the opposite route. We, we, we have corrupted ourselves. We, we would not receive our innate purpose of ref reflecting God's glory, but rather we have collapsed inward. We have what the, what the old church father used to say, homo and curvitas inside, the, the inward curving of the human soul, and we have become self-obsessed, self-referential. That purpose of reflecting God's glory has been inverted so as to make us obsess about ourselves and set ourselves up as the only one we want to see and the only one we want to express. That's what expressive individualism is in our society <laughs> It's just that core corruption in the human heart that now expresses itself as the most important thing. We have tried to recreate ourselves in our own image. We, re we refuse the form in which we were created. And so we run from God in that task of self-creation. We have become untethered from our purpose. But here's the thing. The biblical story shows that because we are created, we can only use the tools we already have to go and try to recreate ourselves. Does that make sense? Because we are created, we can only take what God has already given us and then repurpose that for our own sinful campaigns of self-creation. And so we take our psychology... <laughs> 
We take our eroticism and sexuality and bring it up into the most important piece of who we are. It's taking pieces of what we've already been given as human beings, psychology and sexuality, and using those to construct our own sense of meaning. The biblical story says that's what's gone wrong. That's what's gone wrong. And that, that's why those stories don't work. <laughs> In order to, to make ourselves into our own image, into what pleases us rather than God, we end up cutting ourselves apart and emphasizing certain pieces of what it means to be human. We cut ourselves down into pieces and we, we highlight certain pieces of our personhood and, and elevate those to places they were never meant to be. That's why, that's why the Christian church should say to our society, these narratives of the psychological man and woman and the best expression of your, of your personhood through sexuality, that's why we stand and say, don't do it. It won't work. Listen, your psychology and your sexuality is an important piece of who you are, but it is a terrible thing to tow your whole sense of purpose behind. It, it's not enough. We, we, we tie our whole existence and, and purpose to, to only pieces of what we are, and of course, we end up getting exhausted in the process. Indeed, in, in making ourselves, we end up ruining ourselves by buying into that lie that freedom is found, being untethered from God's design and purpose, we actually end up limiting ourselves. By highlighting only pieces of our humanity, we end up destroying the possibility of wholeness. We have refused God's design. But the good news is that God himself has refused your refusal. He would not stand by as we destroyed ourselves through making ourselves. Instead, he would take on the task of recreation. We see that in the first Corinthian passage, right? There, there, there is in that passage a, a kaleidoscope of brokenness, and sexual sin is clearly noted. Sexual immorality and homosexuality is seen as deviations from God's design, as, as attempts to, to remake ourselves. Yet, the passage turns at this line, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In the Corinthian church, there were people who could identify with each one of those sins, but there's been an interruption. There's been an interruption in their life where God has invaded their brokenness with grace. They are no longer left to build their own lives through sexual sin, but God has come in through Jesus Christ to save them out of that burden of self-creation, to pay the penalty for their sin, and to make them back slowly into those who would reflect the glory and grace of God. The biblical story hinges on, on recreation, 
We, we are made new again as Jesus takes on the penalty for our sinful self-creation, and we are slowly, over time, remade into what we were made to be. That's a better story than personal psychological happiness. That's a better story than outsourcing your wholeness and your personhood to a piece of, you, a piece of who you are in your sexuality. Rather, God invites. God confronts, certainly, and shows that this self-creation is not small, it's not a mistake, it's not a hiccup, it's not a whoopsie, it is sin. And God calls it that. But yet, in the same breath, looks at that kaleidoscope of brokenness and pours over the grace of Jesus Christ for the purpose of recreation. And let me, let, let me take a moment and ask you this. Is this story enough for your sexuality? My guess is that some of you may be disappointed thinking that, that this sermon was only going to give us reasons for why LGBTQ ideas are insufficient and unbiblical. And I certainly could have done that. I could have gone the rational route pointing out the logical inconsistencies of the secular worldview that says that evolution in its highest value is a propagation of the species. Meanwhile, in the same breath, we are valuing a sexuality that does not make possible for the propagation of the species. You could certainly go that route. I certainly could have talked about how there is scientific data, the scientific route, showing that natural law clearly communicates to us what our sexuality is for. And these natural laws, no matter how much we want them to, do not bend into a spectrum. But I, I didn't want to do that, because that's not the core of this discussion. In the spring, we're going to have classes around sex and sexuality. We're going to talk about LGBTQ issues. I hope in March we're going to have a forum with, with a fantastic pastor named Sam Alberry who has, who has struggled with same-sex same attraction his whole life and has done some of the best work on what it means to be a Christian with same-sex attraction. We want to equip you with clear, reasonable arguments for the biblical sexual ethic, but reasonable, reasonable Arguments do not bring repentance. Even biblical arguments around human flourishing and our sexuality does not guarantee that anyone will be convinced to the point of, of repentance. What we really need is a reorientation around the story that we have to tell. We need to see that in the end, what is wrong about sexual sin what is wrong about anything in the LGBTQ community is that it's living in a world detached from the true story of the world. That's the burden. That should be the burden. And only when we tell that story, only when we live out that story, does our church and even our own personal sexualities begin to be placed back in its right spot in the orbit of our lives? When the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of our creation, 
of our corruption and our redemption, when that is set at the center instead of just arguments, then everything slowly gets placed back in the right orbit. So we, as, as a church, need to tell a better story. How do we do that? How do we embody that practically? Last week, as I talked about our shift in this fall series, I talked about us, being, uh, us looking at some Seattle-specific culture issues and trying to ask the question, what virtue do we need to embody to our city because our city is tired of hearing what we have to say and wants to see what we will do? What's that for this week? It's this. Here's how you tell the gospel. Here's how you tell the better story of the gospel in your real life. You embody the virtue of compassion without complicity. And those two things can coexist. (laughs) They can. You see it in the life of, of Jesus. Jesus, the most compassionate person to have ever walked the earth, a man who looked at the brokenness of our world and really felt it in his soul, really felt it in his guts and was so compassionate, he was angry about its brokenness, but who for not a second was complicit in an untrue story about what it means to be a human being. And so we as a church, to embody, to tell a better story and to show our hopefully watching city, what the gospel can produce and what virtue we need to embody in this conversation around sexuality is compassion without complicity. Compassion, because you're there in that 1 Corinthians passage also. I'm there in that 1 Corinthians passage also. Compassion that has the right view of ourselves and feels our sin to be even more grimy than anyone else's. Compassion that does not declare war on the sins of our culture and makes a, make, a, make a peace treaty with our own. That's what we do, right? That's what self-righteousness does. Declare war on everyone else's sins and make a peace treaty with our own. We as a church need to resist that and see just how dark our own hearts are how much grace still needs to reform and shape our hearts. And as we express that compassion, we, we do it through things like, like hospitality. Can we, can we as a church give anyone here and anyone outside of these walls in the LGBTQ community something that that community has fought for for a long time? Two things, listening ears and open tables. A church that's willing to compassionately listen to each individual story on what's happened. What, what, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What have they gone through? And to have an open table to say, whether, whether you believe what we believe or not, whether you see our view as de- destructive or not, our, our table is open. But not for the sake of complicity. Because complicity is not kind. That's, I know that's a question that, that, that many of us have to think through and answer. That it feels so unkind to not be complicit. 
The opposite is true, friends. It is not kind to support, reinforce, and cosign on stories that end up devolving and cutting us apart as human beings. That's not kind. That's not loving. And so we as a church in this category, if we're going to mean anything, if we have any validity in our preaching of the gospel to this city, it must be embodied with that virtue of compassion without complicity. Because we know that that is exactly how Jesus himself has treated every single one of us. We're in this room because of the compassion of Jesus. Not because you grew up Christian, not because you were raised in a Christian family or because you have certain moral inclinations or intellectual convictions. You are in this room. If you are a Christian, it happened because Jesus was moved with compassion and moved towards you in his saving. And he indeed poured out his own life to the, point of, to the point of death on a cross because he would not be complicit in letting sin be passed over. In this virtue, we simply reflect the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's do that together, church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that that you have treated each and every one of us with such compassion. How long you have put up with all of our sin. How long you have persevered with our own personal brokenness and sin. We praise you that you refused our refusal and you moved toward us. You gave us grace. You gave us newness of life in Christ in all the areas that we've destroyed it through our sin. God, would you make us into a people that lives lives together here in community and out in the community that actually tell that story, that actually show the, the, the grace of Jesus Christ as the as the game changer. God, you've not given us an airtight argument. You've given us an airtight person. And we want to proclaim him, Christ and him crucified, and what that really means for our sex and sexuality. All that that means for us to have the opportunity to be recreated back into who we were made to be, where we find our truest selves in submission to you and in reflecting your great glory. Make us a church like that. And let our witness shine with grace and truth. We trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You're about to hear the post-sermon Q&A with Pastor Josh. Thanks for listening. Feel free to check out our Instagram during the week for questions that we didn't have time to answer in service. Number one, how do we approach a conversation that is basically going to attempt to dismantle what someone perceives as their humanity without seeming like hypocrites or being dismissed as bigoted and lacking true compassion? How do we keep from playing defense all the time? That's a great question. And I think that 
all of this, again, kind of similar to, to what I shared at the end, all of this has to exist within relationship. And so one of, the, one of the best ways that you can begin this conversation without someone receiving it as you dismantling their uh, humanity is for you to have some relational credibility where you've seen and affirmed their humanity as a person. <laughs> You've treated them like a human being. You, you've been compassionate with them. You, you've had them over. You've had conversations. And, and listen, this is not something that we need to always have conversations about with anyone who is in the LGBTQ community. I, I think we, we as Christians, we want rules. <laughs> we want a law that we can follow. But the truth of it is that many of us just need to further invest in a sensitivity toward what the Spirit is saying to you in that moment. You have the spirit of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. You actually do if you're a Christian. And what we need to do, especially in this conversation, is invest in our own sensitivity to what the Spirit might be leading us into so that we don't ruin the whole thing. Second, really quickly, why does it often seem the conversation with non-believers begins with sin and not with the good news of the gospel and our Savior? Is it better to discuss such things once the Spirit has begun the work of personal conviction? That way the rules aren't the stumbling block. I think one of the reasons why this is such a difficult conversation is because it's so, like the issue isn't new, but the conversation is. <laughs> Like Christians just have not had the history and the experience of actually talking with other human beings who have different sexual convictions and different sexual orientations. We just haven't done that a lot. And that's, I just want to say that's okay. You're new to this. In a lot of ways, the church in our nation, the, the, the faithful church, is, is new to this conversation. And that's unfortunate. I wish we would have been having this conversation long before that. But we are new to it. And when we're new to things, it's easy to just kind of get into ruts, right? It's, it's easy to get into conversational ruts. And one of the easiest things to do is just to begin it with the disagreement rather than the good news of the gospel. And so is, is it better to discuss such things once the Spirit has begun the work of personal conviction? I, I would be cautious of your own um, sense of being tuned in to when personal conviction is happening. I, I, I don't, like, unless you're actually expressing it, I think if you're waiting to make, no, to at least make known the biblical sexual ethic that you carry, if you're waiting for someone to have a sense of personal conviction around their own sexuality, you're never going to have that conversation. You're just not going to. So, so it does take a little bit of courage to at least be openly Christian. And that's going to be difficult. It, it will be a stumbling block. And there are examples, even in this church, of, of people who had a lot of relational credibility with a, with a uh, group specifically here in Capitol Hill, who once that group found out that they had a biblical conviction around sexuality, they were quite... In a, in a way, run out of the city. So it, it's going to take courage. I want to say that. I wish I would have maybe said that more in my sermon. It, it's it's going to take courage for you to, you to say this and for you to believe this. And I think you need to decide for yourselves from the Bible, what does God say about our sexuality? You, you need to decide that right now and not wait for the conversation to happen, not wait for the fallout to happen. What, what does the Bible actually say about the good news of our sexuality. So those, those are some of the questions, and, and we'll get to the rest of them on Instagram this week. So be, be sure to check that out. Let's, let's move into our time for communion. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. 
During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.